0: The Gospel of Jesus Christ is a deeply subversive story about the most radical person who has ever walked the face of the earth. The fact is, the way that Jesus lived his life was radically contrary to the expectations of everyone who ever encountered him. Right To the woman caught in adultery who expected to be stoned to death according to the Mosaic law, Jesus dismissed the angry mob, forgave her her sins, and sent her home instead. To the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, who expected Jesus, a Jew, to ignore not only her presence there at the well, but her worth as a human being, given the fact that Samaritans were despised and considered inferior by the Jews, worse than dogs even, and yet Jesus not only gave her dignity, he gave her the hope of eternal life as well. To the Pharisees who expected to be validated for their strict religious behavior, Jesus rebuked them for their hypocrisy instead. To the merchants who expected the temple to be a means of gaining material wealth and prosperity, Jesus flipped over their money tables and drove them out with a whip instead. And to his own followers who expected him to lead a revolt against the Roman occupation, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be taken into custody, mocked, Stripped, beaten, and killed on a Roman cross instead. Nothing Jesus did met the expectations of those who encountered him. He was a rebel to the religious establishment, a revolutionary to his followers, a fearless, uncompromising, and unapologetic preacher of the truth to the masses. He was a fierce defender of the helpless and the broken, and a beacon of pure light to those who are lost in darkness. Everything about the way that Jesus lived his life was radical. And of course... Most of you probably already know that. But do you also know that your life is supposed to be just as radical as his, if not more? Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Luke 6.40 He also said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, radical, and greater works than these will he do. John 14, 12, the apostle John said, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, radical. Radical. First John two six, the apostle Peter said, "For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps." First Peter two twenty one, the apostle Paul said, "Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ." First Corinthians eleven one. In other words, just like Jesus was radical, you and me, we're supposed to be radical too. Understand every. Moment of your life on this earth is infused with purpose. Divine purpose. Every beating of your heart, every breath in your lungs, every single moment of your life has been given to you by God for a purpose. This great, divine, radical purpose for you to fulfill. And to be sure, that is a radical way to live your life. Always. Because first of all, it will constantly defy the expectations of the world around you. And secondly, what living that way does to you and to others because of you is unlike anything else in this world. And, and listen, there is no other way to experience that, to become that, to actually be like Christ, to have that kind of experience and impact in this world than to live radically just like Jesus did. And yet the issue for most of us today, we look at the way Jesus lived as the ultimate standard, right, as the gold standard, something for us to aspire to. When as far as Jesus was concerned, that was the only standard. It's not something we work our way up to. No, the moment you belong to him, you act like him which is a decidedly radical way to live your life, and yet all too many professing believers willfully choose not to live that way. We claim to belong to Jesus while refusing to act like Him, which is just what we'll find in our story today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through 1 Samuel, where Saul, this man who was chosen by God to lead God's people by radically following God's instruction, chooses instead Something less than. Something not quite as radical as the life God had designed for him. And the result was a catastrophic loss of what could have been in Saul's life and in the lives of those who were close to him. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time and, and we'll see how anything less than radically living like Christ actually isn't living like him at all. 1 Samuel chapter 14 Verse 47 to the end of the chapter. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly, and struck the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvai, and Shua, And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahnoam, and the daughter, uh, the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man... He attached him to himself. So uh, that's just uh, a summary overview to finish up that chapter from last week of the fact that Saul was given everything that he needed to live the kind of radically devoted life that God created him to live. He was strong, he was well-established as king over the people, he fought many successful wars, he had a very large and influential family, and he was surrounded by the best of the best when it came to his military, his advisors, his resources. In other words, there was no good reason, no excuses, For Saul to not live exactly as God intended for him to, which just sets up the story in the next chapter. So let's move on into chapter 15 then and we'll begin with the first nine verses. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposition to them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. More than uh, 400 years before this story, the Amalekites were the first people to attack Israel as they escaped Egypt. And so in response to that attack, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book And recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 17, 14. God wasn't messing around here. And so now it's God's intention 400 years later to make good on that promise through Saul, who is to carry out the sentence of God on the Amalekites. And so Samuel comes to Saul and says, listen, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. In other words, here's your reminder, Saul, That you're king, not by popular demand, uh, but by the Lord's appointment, which means you serve at the pleasure of God, not the people. And then he goes on to describe not just the fact that Saul is to defeat the Amalekites, but precisely how he's to defeat them by using the Hebrew term uh, Karim. He actually uses it seven times in his description of Saul's mission just to drive the point home with zero confusion about exactly how God wants Saul to handle these Amalekites, Karam. It's what is referred to as the Kerem principle was actually very familiar to the Hebrew people. It's a word that we don't really have a good equivalent for in our modern English language. It's an ancient term that referred to a special action of setting something apart permanently as the property of God. Uh, So to put something or someone under Kerem was to radically devote that person or that place or that thing to the Lord, either for service or for destruction annihilation right the Karim principle was an all-or-nothing proposition and so when entire cities or entire populations were placed under Karim that usually involved the complete annihilation of that city and its people which uh, which by the way wasn't unique to the Israelites in the Mesha steel it's also called the Moabite stone in in modern-day Jordan There are actually ninth century inscriptions that describe King Mesha of Moab capturing Israelite cities and putting them under Karim. Total destruction in order to honor the Moabite god Chemish. The point being, this principle of Karim was widely understood in the ancient Near East by many peoples so that this order by God through Samuel onto Saul and onto the Israelites would have been very clearly understood. And of course... Uh, that offends our modern sensibilities. And I get it, but you have to understand that this karam principle was employed by God to prevent his chosen people from experiencing precisely what they ended up experiencing throughout history, right? Because they failed to follow through with the karam principle over their enemies. The, the people, uh, listen, the people in and around Canaan, they were deeply, profoundly wicked people. You can read all the gory details in Leviticus 18, 6 through 30 if you like. Deuteronomy also 18, 9 through 14. In fact, uh, we have ancient apocryphal writings, the 2nd century B.C. Wisdom of Solomon being one example, which together with biblical scripture details Canaanite practices of witchcraft, incest, bestiality, child sacrifice by burning the children alive and then cannibalizing their bodies and drinking the blood of those innocent children, not to mention just about every other kind of sexual deviation that you do not want to imagine. And that's just to name a few of the Canaanites' favorite pastimes. And then when you add the de- that depravity, you know, these pagan cultures with the fact that the Amalekites in particular were unrelentingly brutal toward the Israelites for centuries. Is it any wonder God didn't want his chosen people mixing their Hebrew culture with the pagan cultures around them? And so God commands his people to destroy the Amalekites. And again, it was a command that the Israelites very clearly understood. There was zero chance that leaving a remnant of the Amalekites alive was an innocent mistake here. And yet that's exactly what they did. Just compare verse 3 to verse 9. Verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Although it sounds it sounds like the only left Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, actually we know from chapters 27 and 30 on down in this book that there were at least 400 other Amalekite people left alive. In other words, Saul and the Israelites failed to apply Kerim to the whole population, and the results were disastrous. The Israelites had to contend with the Amalekites long after the time of Saul. In fact, Do you know that in the story of Esther, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is described as an Agagite in Esther 3.1, a descendant of Agag. And his Jewish opponent in the story Mordecai, Esther's cousin, is a descendant of Saul's family, according to Esther 2.5. In other words, the book of Esther is the sequel to this story. It's the rematch between Agag and Saul. All because Saul chose something a little less radical than all or nothing. And as a result, it was all for nothing. You see, God's, God's not interested in a part of your life. He wants all of it. He's not looking for some devotion from you. God is looking for radical devotion from you. Okay, God wants all of you and nothing less will do. You understand, it, this life spent following Jesus is infinitely more than repeating a prayer and then waiting for heaven. Right? Radical devotion to Christ is about making decisions every single day that affect your relationship with Him. It's not about how good or bad you want to be. It's about how close to Him you want to be. That's why we eliminate certain things from our lives. The Apostle Paul said all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 1 Corinthians ten twenty three. Okay, our salvation by God is fixed. Our proximity to God is not. In other words, you cannot be more saved or less saved, right? You're either born again or not but your closeness to God is not fixed. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. In other words, since we've been saved by Jesus Christ, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We have the option to draw near to God or not, right? James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Obviously, drawing close to God is a choice that we make. David wrote, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1. This is the very picture of a man who radically devoted his life to God by pursuing closeness to God. And that was a daily choice for him, just as it was for Saul, and just as it is for you and me. And a daily choice to radically devote our lives to Christ and his purposes in our lives. People think uh, Saul's sin was that he violated the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, because he was taking for himself what belonged to God. But listen, by far and away, Saul's greatest sin was that he violated the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He failed to put God before everything else in his life when he chose to set his affections on other things. And we do the exact same thing when we fail to exercise carom against the sin in our own lives, when we choose to live a life that is a little less radical than Jesus, when we set our affections on anything that stands between us and closeness to him, we're assuming that this world must have something to offer us that is better than what Jesus is offering us. That that something less than radical devotion to Christ is somehow adequate. Listen to me. Anything less than radical devotion to Christ will never be adequate. It will never be enough to satisfy what could be in your life, what God is actually offering you. Soren Kierkegaard, he's a 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian. He said it this way, the sense of human adequacy is the primary barrier to genuine faith. Whether expressed as confidence in science, moral progress, or military might, the human feeling of self-reliance distances a person from his or her creator. You see, there's nothing inherently within us or in this world that will ever be adequate to meet our greatest needs or satisfy our deepest longings outside of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. There's simply nothing in this world that will ever be adequate for us apart from Christ. Even an entire lifetime of accumulation and achievement cannot satisfy like one moment in the presence of Jesus. And so we're left to choose. And every single day we choose, will I fully devote myself today to Christ or will I devote myself to something else, something a little less radical? And don't be fooled. Every day, the choice that you make has a direct effect on your life and the lives of those around you. The fact is, listen... If our culture today witnessed more Christians actually living radically devoted lives to Christ, our influence in all facets of society would be profoundly greater than it currently is. We wouldn't need social justice movements to bring about change in our country because the church would already be leading the charge through men and women who've radically devoted themselves to living lives that cannot be ignored, that shatter the expectations of this world and capture the hearts of the lost German pastor and theologian conspirator actually against the Nazi regime and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer a man who lived a life that was unquestionably radically devoted to Christ once said your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God let's keep reading verses 10 through 23 The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not yet performed my commandments. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be be you to the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Uh Uh-oh. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. In other words, it wasn't me. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said though you are little in your own eyes are you not the head of the tribes of Israel the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said go and devote to destruction the sinners the Amalekites and fight against them until they're consumed why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord and Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to the destruction. It wasn't me. The people did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and listen to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So the Lord says to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king. For he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments, which means God felt genuine sorrow when thinking about Saul's sin. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So God grieved by Saul's disobedience, which meant Samuel was also grieved by the same thing because Samuel was radically devoted to God to the point that he felt what God felt. Unlike Saul, who after directly disobeying the command of God, sets up a monument for himself to bring, to bring himself glory for the great victory in battle, and to be sure, uh, it was a great victory, right? Saul beat the Amalekites into submission. The problem was God didn't say, go and beat the Amalekites. He said, go and devote them to destruction. So uh, Saul went about 90% of the way. He did most of what God commanded him to do, right? He was slightly less than radical, and of course, there's a word for partial obedience. It's called disobedience. And so Samuel shows up to confront Saul, who's convinced that Samuel will be overjoyed at Saul's great victory to the point that Saul says, blessed be you to the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Here it is, Saul. I did it until Samuel, Samuel excuse me. And then he points out Saul's unconcealable uh, disobedience. What then is this bleeding of the sheep? that I hear in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen, and then Saul does what Saul does best. He immediately begins to blame everyone else but himself. They brought them from the Amalekites, Samuel, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Don't worry. We're going to sacrifice to God. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which he sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Look at everything I did. I mean, the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best things devoted to destruction, but they took them to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So it's okay that I didn't do what you told me to do. It's okay that it was a little less than radical. And yet, no matter how hard Saul tries to justify his disobedience with half-truths and finger-pointing and the promise of great sacrifices, Samuel explains that all the sacrifice in the world means absolutely nothing without obedience to the word of the Lord, right? Not partial obedience, but radical obedience, even more than sacrifice. Radical obedience is what God desires from us, which is often far more difficult for us to offer God than sacrifice, right? If we're being honest, sometimes it's a lot easier to put a check in the offering on Sunday than to actually live like Jesus Monday through Saturday, It's easier to volunteer for a project that helps someone in need than to live every single day of your life focused on others instead of yourself. It's far easier to give up something valuable to yourself than to give up your own will in submission to the will of the Father. Just ask Jesus. Right, Obedience trumps sacrifice every time. So why then is it so hard for us To obey the word of God and the voice of God. Why does every one of us struggle with obedience at times in our lives? Listen, it's because deep down, we don't believe we can always be obedient. We don't believe we have what it takes to actually live radically according to God's word and God's voice all of the time. And so we substitute obedience with sacrifice to ease the conscience and hopefully balance the scales. Just look at what Samuel says to Saul. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Have you forgotten what God has done for you? Have you forgotten what he's capable of in your life? You see, sometimes what God asks us to do, it seems impossible, radical. And indeed it is radical even impossible at times outside of the spirit of Christ at work within us. But we get so focused on ourselves and what we think we cannot do that we lose sight of him and what he absolutely can do and will do through us. Yet because we seem little in our own eyes, we choose something instead a little less radical. And you understand we're not talking about salvation here. Follow me. Salvation is not based on our behavior. Okay, it is based on the shedding of Jesus' blood on a cross and His resurrection from the dead and His ascension back to the Father. So because of the work that Jesus did, that He did on the cross, we're now offered salvation by His grace through the faith that He has given us to be able to believe in Him. Right? So that we cannot claim one shred of credit for our own salvation. We cannot boast any personal effect of our own that secured the promise of God uh, that he's made to us because it is all and only because of Jesus that we're saved. And so due to that uh, breathtaking reality, The fact that all who choose to receive it are now the recipients of eternal salvation and eternal life spent in the presence of a holy and loving God. We now have the ability and the responsibility to live according to all that he commands us in scripture and directs us in prayer as our grateful response to his gracious gift. And so it's not that we lose our salvation every time we uh, uh, disobey the word of God or the voice of God. But listen, we absolutely lose proximity to him. There are many examples in Scripture, Old and New Testaments. We don't have time to go through them where disobedience separates us from God. Believers, the good news is, just like radical devotion brings closeness to God, radical obedience draws the very presence of God. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 21. Think about what Jesus is saying here. Because look, we sing songs asking for more of God. We yearn for more of him in our lives, right? We pray and ask for him to speak to us because we long to hear his voice. We read the scriptures for comfort and guidance and wisdom and understanding because deep down we know how desperately we need him to show us the way to strengthen us and revive us. And all of that is good and right. But Jesus says what you're looking for when you sing and when you pray and when you read, that can only be found in my presence. Right? Anyone can sing worship songs to God. But without the presence and participation of the Holy Spirit, all we're doing is making noise. Jesus said God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 24. Right? Anyone can pray. But without the presence and participation of the Spirit of God, our prayers are useless. Paul said, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans eight twenty six and 27. Listen, anybody can pick up a Bible and read it. But without the presence and participation of the Holy Spirit, while we read, there's nothing to be taken from it. The Apostle Paul said, No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths, To those who are spiritual, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13. Yes, we should sing to the Lord. Yes, we should pray. Yes, we should read the word. But without the presence and participation of the Spirit of God, we are wasting our time. Because the key to the Spirit of God actively manifesting His presence and power in our lives is not simply going through the religious motions of singing and praying and reading. No, the key to experiencing the manifest presence and power of God is living our lives with radical obedience to his word and to his voice. For that is when Jesus said he would manifest himself to us. And when that happens, listen, when you begin to live with radical obedience, that's when your worship comes alive. That's when your prayers are effective Right? The prayers of a righteous man availeth much, are powerful as they're working. That's when his word transforms your life because his spirit is present and participating in your life like never before. So listen, if you want more of God in your life, the answer is not more singing and more praying and more reading. At least not until there's more obedience. Which unfortunately is the step that most of us want to skip over. So instead we just sing louder and pray harder and read more and then we wonder why nothing is changing in our lives. It's because he didn't call us to partial obedience. Something a little less radical. No, if you want to hear from God, if you you long to be closer to him, try radical obedience to his word and to his voice in your life. Draw near to him through radical obedience and he will draw near to you. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Big mistake. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Unable to talk his way out of taking responsibility for his disobedience, Saul asked for forgiveness. He admits his sin and then immediately follows it up with, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before the Lord. I've sinned, but I want you to honor me. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. It's all a show. For Saul, still more concerned about losing face with the people that he is and losing fellowship with God. Saul begs Samuel to accompany him to a place of worship to make him look good in front of the people and God, which Samuel does. And yet there was one thing left to be done before Samuel goes home because Samuel was close to God and everything in him wanted to honor God. And so there before the Lord at Gilgal, Samuel shows Saul what it means to be truly obedient to the command of God in your life as he calls for the king of the Amalekites to be brought to him so that he can do what Saul was unwilling to do. And right then and there, Samuel, an old man, picks up a sword and hacks the king to pieces. This was Samuel's final lesson for Saul, a lesson he would surely never forget as the old prophet weary and worn brutally kills agag and then covered in the enemy king's blood samuel drops the sword and walks away for the last time he was showing saul that god wasn't simply looking for something less than radical some measure of commitment no right down to the end of the line what god wants from us is radical commitment To follow God, no matter how difficult following Him may be at times. We're to be committed to never give up, to never give in, to never just go part of the way, and to never look back, no matter where following Him leads you. As Jesus was explaining to the crowds of people what it meant to follow Him, what it would require of us, someone said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, "No uh, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke nine sixty one and 62. he to follow Jesus is to make a radical commitment to a life of devotion and obedience, no matter what. In fact, anything less than living radically like Christ actually isn't living like Him at all. Following Him means no turning back and no giving up when the going gets tough. And listen, it's going to get tough at times. Jesus promised us it would. Listen, he made another promise. He said that he would always be with us. When we follow him, he said that he would never leave us. He would never forsake us. People leave and forsake him all the time because they're not willing to make the radical commitment that following him requires. But listen, he will never abandon you. Jesus' commitment to you is unshakable. It's immovable. It's unchanging. It's eternal. And you know why he wants you to be as radically committed to him as he is to you? Because he wants to be close to you. Are you getting the picture? All of this talk about living a radical life, being radically committed and radically obedient, radically devoted to Christ. It's not about proving yourself to God. It's about being close to God, which is what He wants more than anything. And He simply wants you to want that too. It was a radical plan from the beginning. To send his only son, Jesus, to leave his place with the Father, to come to this earth clothed in flesh, to a life of radical devotion and obedience and commitment, to, to suffer even to the point of death and that on a cross of shame, also that he could close the gap that sin had created between us and him. And as unfathomable as it is what he did he did it all simply because he wants to be close to you again because he loves you radically let's pray